Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also wishing you a kick-ass summer. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if American culture has moved on from everything I once knew as a kid or just moved on from most of what I knew as a kid, but back in my day, we had yearbooks in school. And one of the standard go-to yearbook messages that we wrote to each other was the acronym H-A-K-A-S, or HACKAS, which stands for Have a Kick-Ass Summer. And right now, I want to write that acronym in your ears. And not to get too deep about what Spencer Diedrich or Eric Henriksen scribbled in my Glencrest Middle School yearbook, go Spartans, but let's get deep about it, because... I think there's a relatively well-known phenomenon built around certain holidays in our culture where you're supposed to have a specific kind of nice time during that holiday on command. If it's Valentine's Day, you're supposed to have a significant other. If it's Thanksgiving, you're supposed to have a family get together and cook for 10 hours. If it's Arbor Day, you're supposed to legally get married to a tree. That's not a thing. But it's high time we all notice that summer is like a three-month-long version of that holiday pressure, just spread out over June, July, August. Maybe you have a job to go do. Maybe you're not that into beaches. Maybe you'd like to spend your next day off just sitting in a chair, staring at a wall. Well, too bad. Pack a bag. Fly to Florida. It's summer. Anyway, that's a weird situation. We're all in this time of year. And what's weirder is that summer, as a time for fun in the year, is a pretty recent invention. And we've only had businesses specifically catering to that holiday need for a few decades. Before the 1950s, summer was hot. That's about it. But by the 1960s, summer was the time for driving or flying across the country to strap into a cartoon-themed roller coaster with your entire family. We're going to talk about how that happened on this week's episode. I think it's a lot of fun. We're looking all the way back to the 1850s, a great time, and all the way forward to the time Canada spent $10 million building a Shania Twain park. Speaking of Shania World, a lot of this episode was inspired by a cracked article from last month called Eight Amusement Parks That Died Surreal and Bizarre Deaths by E. Reed Ross. Um, The parks in it are abandoned. They are run down. They are occasionally North Korean. They're all gems, and today I'll be joined by cracked editors Tom Ryman and David Christopher Bell to talk about them and so much more. A few other quick things before we get started. I had a cold when we recorded this. If you can hear it in my voice, now you know what's going on. And if you can't hear it in my voice, uh, I, I guess please know how tough I am. That would be great. There's also one part where we talk about the wonderful wizard of Braz. One more time, that is the wonderful wizard of Braz. That name will make sense in context. Just know, in hindsight... I think I underappreciated the wonderful Wizard of Bras in the moment. Just like mentally fill in more laughs from me on that. It's really great. This episode also has a particularly solid footnotes section, I feel like, or as it's more commonly known, footnotes. One thing we want to mention right up top, we have a special miniseries running inside of our feed with the ways that grooming and style and hair and all those other things in fiction influence characters in ways you'd never notice. It's a three-episode miniseries. The second one came out this past Friday, and the third one, hosted by Soren Bowie and Daniel O'Brien, comes out this coming Friday. It's all right in the Crack Podcast feed for you to check out. We hope you enjoy it. Please sit back or sit upright paying attention to the road and enjoy this Summer Jam episode with Tom Ryman and Dave Bell and me. I'll catch you again at the end. Talk to you soon. We are joined in the studio today by David Christopher Bell. 
Hi. Who writes for the site is David Christopher Bell. And we're also <laughs> joined by Tom Ryman, who hey. uh, writes for the site as Alex Schmidt. So it's a great line. I do, I do. It, uh, it makes things a little confusing, but I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for rolling with my name jokes right up top. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I contributed nothing else to it. <laughs> And uh, thanks for uh, coming together for this today. Sure. I think a lot of people don't know back home, you know, listening to the show, that around the office we're known as the boys of summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just sort of who people see us as. And summer's coming up. I thought we could get into why uh, summer is a construct and it's created some of the craziest businesses in the history of the world. Was not created by Don Henley, though. <laughs> I thought of you guys for this also because you worked on an article that we ran the site by E. Reed Ross called Eight Amusement Parks That Died Surreal and Bizarre Deaths. And I don't know if people have seen it, but it's full of places that I don't know how people even began to found them. Like the right. article explains it, but it's still, I need like deeper psychological studies of a lot of these Right, folks. like what mania possessed them to build these attractions and then to think that people would want to go? I don't know. If you look at attractions that were successful... Those are also insane. Yeah. So they right. had just as much of a shot as anything <laughs> That's else. That's true. They were just like, let's roll these dice. Yeah. Friggin' Anheuser-Busch was like, we're a beer company. Let's make a theme park. And that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is it? Oh, Busch Gardens. Busch Gardens, yeah. Yeah. I think one of the most American things about summer is that it's inspired a whole bunch of businesses where the only rule is, will people show up and buy a ticket? That's it. It can be anything you want in any place you want at all. It just needs to be something where people will attend. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, whatever just insane spectacle you can create. If enough people want to gawk at it, then you got a business right there. Yeah, yeah. You're good to go. That's how the circus works. Yeah, I think so like, we're going to put this not, guy in a ring with lions and see if he survives. Right. It's not the first profession, but it's probably like the third. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just like, let's do something really crazy and see if people will pay to watch it. <laughs> and they will. <laughs> they will pay a lot. Right. Yeah. Just a caveman chiseling a ticket. Like, well, yeah. someone will buy this from me. Because <laughs> I hit myself with another rock and that's it. Yeah. As far as the origins of summer i think that's just interesting on its own i was looking into it in general it seems like we haven't always had that and that's something that was a little bit of a surprise to me even just to think of in general that the idea of taking a summer off is like the idea of taking a weekend off or the idea of a work week being a thing it's not something that we always just had because you know there's just always work to do you used to just work all the time right that was just what you did the sun's up so yeah and the same thing with school schools used to just be open year-round and children would go when they would go like yeah everybody's schedule was sort of different there's a, a piece on slate that gets into it and where they talk about how especially in the mid-1800s in America, schools would just be open most of the year in cities. And also they wouldn't be mandatory in cities. So it was a thing where children just showed up if they wanted to most of the time. Like school was, I don't know, I guess like a post office or bank or movie theater. Or something. You know, it's just like open and you'll go when you go and that's it. That's incredible. Yeah. Because yeah. it's basically like, look, if you want to learn, it's right here. Uh, if you don't, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, screw you then. They say that just be a, a dummy. In 1842, Detroit's economic year was about 260 days. In New York, it was 245 days. Chicago, it was 240. And when you compare that to us now with weekends and summers, it's around maybe 180, 170, something like that. 
And so just most of the time you could go, but also kids didn't go that often. Apparently in Brooklyn, they reported that in 1850, more than a half of students just showed up to school six months of the year. And the rest of the time they were just doing... So because they were working? It's that, unclear. Yeah, that know. was also a, a big part of, of, of unions and such like that. It was child <laughs> labor laws, which to this day still don't cover farms. I think that must have been part of it was that, particularly in agrarian communities, right, where it's just, well, the kids will go to school when it's an off season on the farm. Otherwise, they're going to be at the farm, at the family farm doing work. Yeah. And it probably, I imagine the same thing in the city when it's like, if there's no coal to scuttle, then you're going to go, <laughs> you're going to go read Tom Sawyer <laughs> at the local schoolhouse. I love how the past was just comical. It's the best. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, well, it's, not the tragic part, but right. you know, the, like, way, the, the things people did for fun. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the way that we just like brutally thrust children into the workforce. I yeah. mean, I get it. Because <laughs> yeah. like life was harder back then. So you make more people and then you just throw them in the mess. And you're like, yeah. here, fucking lend a hand. Yeah, it's like, well, I don't have any money to hire extra help, so... I'll make them. Let's have more kids. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned, like, rural places, people trying to figure out when kids could go to school, and it, it was very seasonal. It also didn't line up with the break we have now, because apparently kids were by far the most needed in the fall for harvesting and the spring for planting. There's this PBS piece where they talked to a historian named Kenneth Gold, and he says that... Um, there is a myth out there that, oh, we have summers off because that made sense agriculturally as far as school goes. But actually, kids mostly had time to go to school in the summer and in the winter. Right. They would have a short term each of those times going to school and other times they were doing farm work at the time when now kids are in class. Uh, Yeah, I was reading that piece because you sent it along before the podcast. And it's interesting that the myth became... um Oh, it's well, the, it's the the rural communities, the agrarian communities that was to line up with their schedule. It's like no, it was to line up with the urban schedule, yeah. Because cities in the summer were a fucking nightmare <laughs> before air conditioning was a thing. So it's like yeah. trying to keep people in crowded schoolhouses or just anywhere in like bustling urban centers of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries was just a freaking nightmare. Particularly like on the East Coast where it's all swampy and marshes, and we hadn't moved west yet. It's interesting that being able to do that kind of stuff coincides with people starting to set up cities to the West, and it's all because of air conditioning, I think. When air conditioning became a thing, it became more feasible to have people do summer schools or or things like that. And then also when air conditioning became a thing that you could have in your car, it like lines up when people like started to like really move west to like the west coast so it's like air conditioning allowed us to do this stuff (laughs) yeah i read especially in the 20th century that was how a lot of you know that's how we have cities like phoenix like there's that great king of the hill thing that's always screen capped on the internet where they just arrive in phoenix and they get out of their car and i think peggy says this is a monument to man's hubris like this city should not be yeah um in the 1800s yeah it was one of the reasons that urban people decided Because for one thing, there were educational experts who felt that keeping kids in school year round, for one thing, kids just didn't want to show up for it. But also there were a few people who thought that that actually led to like insanity in children. It cooped them up too much and it was a big problem for them just mentally and psychologically. It's unclear whether that's true. But one of the reasons they said, oh, if we do have some time off, let's make it the summer, was that, yeah, these schools in urban centers on the East Coast didn't have air conditioning. And so they were just absolutely awful to physically be in for everybody. And not good ventilation. It's yeah, just regardless. Yeah. I mean, air conditioning was a way off, but like... 
Yeah, it's, yeah. So we're just gonna like suffocate kids in these terrible cities. Like cities are freaking terrible <laughs> in like the 18th, 19th century. Yeah, because well, we've also covered up on the site. I think that especially in the late 1800s, before cars had really come about, a lot of cities, especially like New York, were just filled with horse poo. Yeah, right. just the cities were flowing with it, and it was stacking up. Yeah, just disease <laughs> sponges baking sponges. in the sun yeah, during yeah. the summer. <laughs> So everybody would get the hell out of the cities during the mm. summer. And so it just, yeah. Yeah. It just made sense to not have school. <laughs> it makes sense in general. If you're going to give kids a break, do it during like the nice time of year. Like it's sort of a dick move to be like, all right, you're free. There's like three feet of snow outside. <laughs> right. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, go stay inside this other building. Yeah. For several weeks. <laughs> snow pants haven't been invented yet. Mm. So <laughs> the one kind of pants we have, that will be in the snow. Rad snowmobiles are a way off. Um, <laughs> snowboards, not a thing. So I, I heard that as rat snowmobiles. And oh. I was like, oh, is this like an urban poverty thing that I don't know about? But <laughs> no, it's the band Rat <laughs> on snowmobiles. <laughs> Definitely hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, peak America. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> there were also there were a couple other reasons they decided that hey, in cities we should take summers off. One of them was that community leaders thought like the heat and also people being crowded was a way that disease would spread, uh, which is probably fair. It's probably That's true. Pr- yeah. Probably an accurate All thing. Although that hot horse poo sitting in the clay oven that was a city street in the 19th century. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah just, you're breathing in all sorts of just awesome yeah. diseases. Great time to be a New Yorker. Uh, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The other reason that cities said, hey, we should go with the summers off is that wealthy people, partly because of the heat and partly because of the poo and partly because of, uh, I don't know, just every other reason, they started leaving cities, especially New York, to just go out into the hills and the forests and anywhere else they could possibly be, but especially nature. And so since that was the time they were doing it, they would take their kids with them. And so people running schools said, hey, the kids are out of town more and more now anyway. Why don't we just call it off? must have been frustrating for the teachers before they figured that out. Mm. Like, they keep going to work at the schoolhouse, and there's, like, one kid there. And yeah, you, and they you still know, technically and, have to teach him. Yeah, you know it's the weird kid, too. Right. And this is before they could just roll in a TV and, like, pop in a copy of, like, <laughs> Titanic or sure. something. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I like to imagine the old version was just they they uh, tell the story of a future ship that sinks and <laughs> <laughs> like perform it. You know. As far as people going on vacations went, um, there's a piece in Smithsonian. It's called like "Where Was the Birthplace of the American Vacation?" and they talk about uh, how they argue it was like one guy who was a preacher in New England who sort of invented people in New York City going out to the Adirondacks and then from there invented in a lot of ways just summer vacation from there. Which is kind of shocking. You would think it would be more of a group decision. It would just be one guy. Yeah, it was this one dude who wrote a book about... It was a more accessible thing, but there had been people who had gone off into the wilderness and written about it, like Thoreau and... Yeah, the transcendentalists being like, oh, when I go to this pond in Massachusetts... I'm going to go out to the woods and think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But this dude, I don't remember his name. William H.H. Murray was his name. Okay, yeah. yeah. So Murray writes this book that's more like a how-to travel guide. Like, he's like, you go out here to this place, here's what to bring, here are sites to see. Like, he wrote a tra- he wrote a travel guide, and he mentioned all the different activities, and, like, he really made it sound awesome. So it's like, the next season after that book took off, the Adirondacks was, like, crushed with people coming up 
to like, you know, yeah. go on vacation. <laughs> and it was like they were completely because they were normally only used to like catering to rich guys going on hunting trips. Yeah. So it was like there wasn't a tourism industry that wasn't an infrastructure that the country had yet. Because at this time, this is in the 19th century, the 1800s. It was, yeah, he wrote it. It's called Adventures in the Wilderness. And he published it in April of 1869. And then the I... summer of 1869, people just uh, swarmed the Adirondacks and the press called it Murray's Rush named after this guy, William H.H. H. Murray, and said it was a human stampede, like hungry <laughs> trout on a mayfly-feeding frenzy, which is some really really lovely language for just everyone in New York taking the train up to the woods. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that infrastructure didn't exist. Like, people uh, yeah. didn't view... Like, nobody wanted to go to nature. We were actively still trying to destroy nature back then. Right. It was our opponent. Right. <laughs> like, let's, well, let's chop. Obviously, we're going to chop all these trees down so we can build some nice houses and stuff. Yeah. He was like, no, let's, you, go, you go sit, you hang out in nature, and it's great. It's very relaxing. <laughs> and so, yeah, people started to do that. I mean, they're probably right in pinpointing that. Was that Wait. the tipping point where we stopped fearing nature? Or we I stopped having to, like... Because survive in nature, we were like, "Eh, let's go back and take a look in there. And like, it's fine now. Like we had national parks, right? Because that was Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, no, no, we didn't yet. Yeah, I don't know. We we didn't. Yeah, Yeah, because he wasn't president until way later. (laughs) (laughs) Before this point, if you took a long trip, you're just like going to live somewhere. Because why would anybody (laughs) fucking take a long trip somewhere? No, you're going out to like, yeah, find gold or. You're not going to come back a week later. What's the point? Yeah, no, people would. if 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 you went off into the wilderness and then came back in two weeks, people would just assume that something had gone catacombed catastrophically wrong <laughs> well yeah because also and we'll get into it a little bit later but especially the theme park industry depended on the long ago early 20th century cars started being a thing but especially planes like really made that a right. possible thing for people to do but when murray published this book he published it with uh, train schedules inside of it that was like a fold-out section where you can be like oh the one way i could possibly get to this place I'll use that to go to the woods. And then apparently the first summer people went in 1869, it was, just happened to be pretty cold and pretty rainy for a summer. And so everyone hated it and they were mad about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then he, he wrote a, an editorial in the New York Tribune, which was called Reply to His Calumniators. That is because the, the past is the best. Yeah, that's the best title. Yeah. <laughs> and he just claimed that all of my calumniators are wrong. I hate all my calumniators. Yeah, that's and it's that's the old timey equivalent of to all the haters. Right, right. Like, and he argued that like because uh, his book became popular because it was about how nature is revitalizing and a thing to spend time in and gets you away from the city, which he pretty easily argued was terrible in those days. And then the next summer in 1870, apparently it was very nice. And by 1875, there were hundreds of hotels and camps in the Adirondacks, which are which are upstate New York, if people don't know. That's like toward Lake George and Vermont and that area. But once people in New York City were starting to do that regular vacation process, that helped solidify summers off for New York City schools. And then that practice sort of spread to other cities. And then in the late 1800s, education reformers said, hey, we've got farm schools where people take the fall and spring off and city schools where people take the summer off we need to even this out because we're all americans and like if people move that'll be weird we need to get this worked out and so from that weird arbitrary kind of based on taking a train to the woods process we got kids off in the summer from school neat yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. i mean it makes sense Um, yeah like the whole point of progress of course is to make the future better 
So, like, there would be a point where we'd be like, you know, we deserve a time off, like a break to just enjoy everything we're putting together and building. Yeah, yeah. Let's go look at other places. Let's eat at other people's restaurants. Like, see what that's all about. <laughs> yeah, why would we deny ourselves the joy of going into the woods because... Yeah, we work, we work hard. But yeah. I also like that his travel book had the train schedules. He had to tell you how to travel. Like yeah. he was like, you see, you get on a train <laughs> and you go to this place. Look, I got it all here. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, I mean, he made it seem like a thing that you could, that you could do. Yeah. Throw and they weren't looking for accessibility. They were just like, this is a thing that I did. Right, right. And only me <laughs> to contemplate existence or whatever. And he's and, like, no, I was just hang fishing. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. And people would read Thoreau and be like, that guy is brilliant. Anyway, I'm going to go back in this mine shaft every day now. Uh, right. And yeah. Do what <laughs> I do in the mine shaft. Toxic dust. Um, and so that it was a late 1800s thing where people started to say, oh, this is the thing I can go do. And apparently people following Murray's book, one complaint that people had about what he was doing was that women were going to the woods now. Like before then, it was just men going to these lodges and doing that. And so then there were editorials saying like, keep women out yeah. of the woods. This Give is for us. ladies. Yeah, yeah. With their bloomers or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I love just broadly pastiching the past. It's the best. Right, really yeah. Uh, <laughs> were they not going into the woods before this point because of the danger of it, because it seemed like a challenging thing? Is this like Mount Everest, where for the longest time that was like a special thing people did? And now everybody's yeah. going up it. Is this what space will be one day? <laughs> like where we're one day someone will be like, you know, we can just go up there now. Yeah. Right. And everybody will be like, oh, yeah, you're right. We can just get on one of these rockets and go up there. <laughs> it's not hard. Yeah. I mean, I get the sense it's mostly the kind of place where people were going, but it was only seen as specific people doing it for specific reasons. And this is the overall interesting thing that we can get at with summer is that it is a relatively recently created amount of time. And so then people have then tried to figure out how to fill that time with every possible thing they can think of. And a lot of the things they've thought of are just nuts because <laughs> all they need to do is fill the time. That's it. It just needs to be some kind of place where people will go and spend some money doing it. And so that's how we've gotten everything from these people taking their random trains up to the right, woods right. all the way to the Shania Twain world in a random yeah. town in Ontario <laughs> from that article. It's not just that it created the idea of vacation. It was specifically this time period, this summer. Like yeah. summer is for vacation. It, it's a construct that we all have this expectation. This is when we get to do all our fun stuff. And it created the industry. Yeah. And the industry, I feel like, is what created stuff like the Shania Twain Museum, yeah, where yeah. at first it was like, let's go to the woods, have a good time. And then these places are like, well, let's get people here. What do we got? Let's build a big, stupid park and everybody won't want to come. <laughs> like, the crazier, the better. Back to that cracked article for a bit. Again, it's eight amusement parks that died surreal and bizarre deaths. There was formerly a Shania Twain Center, spelled with an R-E, in the town of Timmins, Ontario. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That Shania Twain was nice enough to donate her memorabilia <laughs> to. Right. Because why not? Um, someone's making a museum You're of you. going to put it somewhere. It might as yeah. well be in the... <laughs> Which included her McDonald's Lifetime Employee Award. Wait, what? What is a McDonald's Lifetime Employee Award? I don't award? know. I just read this off the article. <laughs> Let's, uh... <laughs> 
I, do, I wonder if like she's allowed to be an employee for life. Like she, she can just walk into any McDonald's. Is she still drawing a paycheck? And start operating things. Like just start running machines and yeah. cooking fries and whatever yeah, she wants. Yeah, yeah, like you're, you're like, getting, getting, getting a little bit in the weeds during our lunch rush and Shania walks in. She's like, oh, it's all right. I got the yeah, fries. Yeah. I'm on the fries. Or like if she wants a shake, she can just go behind the counter and start right. doing it. And yeah, nobody right. can stop her. <laughs> If you're a younger person listening to this show, Shania Twain was a country singer <laughs> who <laughs> had some hit albums at one point. In the late 90s. Uh, and it's probably a great lady. But they tried to build an entire museum around her that apparently that cost about $10 million in government grants from the Canadian government hmm. to construct and build. Yeah, so the museum did not work out. It was something like a $30 subsidy from the government for every visitor. Um, oh, like, yeah, if you break out how much it costs to build. Yeah. Yeah. And they eventually, it was 12 years of just nobody caring <laughs> until they finally blew up the building for a gold mining operation. Yeah. I, in the article, it was really dramatic as a reader because I was like going through the text and I was like, I wonder how this ends. And then I scrolled to a picture of an explosion. Yeah. <laughs> They dynamited it when they were done with it <laughs> Which because is, they were so frustrated with for, it. For a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm picturing like an old timey prospector <laughs> stuffing it full of dynamite. I like to think they didn't take anything out of it either. They just left it Blew intact it all with up. the Her memorabilia. Lifetime employee award. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Maybe you're starting a small business. Maybe you're starting a large business. Maybe you're inspired by today's episode and starting a ridiculous theme park based on, I don't know, the Jetsons. Well, finding great talent for Jetsons land or a more reasonable business can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter's different. Unlike other job sites, they don't depend on candidates finding you. ZipRecruiter finds them. That's why over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Top that tech, the Jetsons. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. And you can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, by listening to the Crack Podcast, you can post your jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Yeah, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. One more time to make sure you get our secret password. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com com slash cracked. Today's episode is also brought to you by stamps.com. It is not easy to go to the post office. It's even harder for somebody like me in Los Angeles, where we have terrible traffic and horrifying amounts of sunlight that I can't handle. But anyone can have an easier time if they do what they would do at the post office right from their desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. And unlike the post office, stamps.com does not close. You can get your postage 24-7. I have found it to be very useful when I want to have, you know, just like a nice time in my house, also getting my business done, also sending out those Father's Day gifts. So, 
Right now, you can use our code CRACKED for a special offer of a four-week trial, including postage and a digital scale. That's probably even just fun to play with and stuff. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in CRACKED. Please type in CRACKED, because then that helps us. That's Stamps.com. Enter code CRACKED. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Let's look back on the overall creation of theme parks, because I feel like that's been one of the dominant American, Canadian, and otherwise across the world answers to people have summer. What do we do with them? And the big answer to that has been building theme parks, leading with the works of Walt Disney, uh, taking over Florida and from there, California, and from there, uh, I guess, the rest of the world. I think California was first. Yeah. Like Disney, uh, Disneyland California was first. California and then Florida. Yeah. And it, it came from him, apparently, him wanting something more interesting for people who are coming to tour Walt Disney Studios to look at. Okay. And apparently he got the idea from Griffith Park. They had a small park there. had like a carousel. And so he was like, oh, I could completely own that space. What if I just build something like that near the Walt Disney Studios? Because, yeah. again, there wasn't much for people to see. So he's yeah. like, well, I want to create a thing for people to come see. Briefly, for people who, who aren't very familiar with L.A., Griffith Park is the main park in Los Angeles. It's like a big, open, green space on top of mountains. And it was also donated by a man named Griffith, J. Griffith, who uh, <laughs> was trying to mend fences with the city after he, uh, I believe, allegedly shot his wife, mm. uh, which he survived. But he was like, I am a pariah in L.A., so I'm going to donate this park and also this theater and also this observatory and, and mend fences. And that's man. how L.A. got its large park, Griffith Park. Just Amazing. allegedly, she survived, and it's just a man. She, yeah, she it was, was like, like I don't snitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think it was a thing where he was like not convicted, but everyone still thought he did it. Right, kind of right, right, right. Yeah, because he was a very wealthy industrialist who was like the leading light of Los Angeles, and so then he donated what's now like a quarter of the city to the city. And you see Griffith Park in a lot of movies, like the Observatory is where the naked Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator first shows up in the first movie. Transformers, Rebel Without a Cause, The Knife Fight. It's in a lot of movies. Um, anyhow. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. He was convicted of shooting his wife. Oh, he he served two years in prison, partly because she survived. Oh, okay. okay. He did shoot her. Yeah. Not as bad as he could have. <laughs> he could have shot her a lot worse. You can have two years. Right, right. But anyway, but so then the park, you it had a carousel and it had some attractions. And so Walt said, yeah. I could do this, but with my studio and make a, a thing. Yeah. And I think his first idea was Epcot. If I, I, that, I don't even know if he conceived that as a park. He had the idea of, for a long time to build a community. Yeah. And there was rumors that he had considered seeding from the country at one point too. Like the idea of just Wait, like, like breaking away into a new country. Yeah, I, I don't know how confirmed <laughs> that was, but that was the whole community, the Epcot thing. He wanted to basically create his own nation, his own personal futuristic city and world. And uh, right. I think he was uh, aiming a little too high there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anyone could do it. Yeah. So yeah. uh, it's, he... a little, it's a little troubling that a park that's in a lot of ways the template for like all summer entertainment was at one point maybe a way to form like a micronation. It's yeah. a little bit troubling, <laughs> yeah, he right? wanted to annex some land from the United <laughs> <little> States. strange. <laughs> well, the park is very self-sustaining and it has its own police. It has undercover police. Like it's a very dystopian community this already. Disney World, right? Disney World, yeah. Because yeah. I guess we should go through the history, but Disney World was him basically wanting to try it again, but like... But like with a more grander version of his of his vision. yeah. Disneyland was this thing that he 
built it, I think, in the 50s. Oh, yeah, 1955, yeah. And it started pretty small and then gradually grew into, into the park that people kind of recognize today as he got more and more ideas of what he wanted to make. And to get funding for it, he had to pull a lot of strings. Like, he, he signed a deal with ABC, uh, which is one of three television networks at the time. This is back way back before uh, cable was a thing. You had three options to watch on television. ABC was one of them. They sponsored a show that took place in Disneyland. That was part of the way he paid for it. And also, like, all the shops that you see uh, walking into Disneyland when you first get in there, there's that Main Street area that has, like, shops and stuff. That used to be all, like, third-party shops. Like, he would rent out the shopping space to, like, other stores and stuff right. to help wow. pay for it. And everything is pretty much... I'm going off of memory right now, so <laughs> um, there may be some footnotes at the end here. But, like, everything was pretty much the way you see it today, except for some inexplicable reason he wanted to call it Disneylandia. Oh. And ABC was like, why don't you just call it Disneyland? <laughs> Disneyland was like, a million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. Also, drop the Ia. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a movie that it's from. Just check it out. Let's look at that word. Yeah, they were like, you maybe don't need those additional two syllables. <laughs> yeah, and so the Main Street, it was like a mall. Like, it was just tenants Basically would like yeah. an outdoor mall, yeah. and, the Main and Street, make it happen. Like a strip mall. There's actually a letter um, from 1948 of him writing to one of his production designers talking about Main Street. And it was basically his idea of the perfect town. What his memory of childhood memory of what. Oh, wow. A town should be. And so it has all those elements, the the cutesy, like, police station. And he wanted everything to function the way they would. So, like, the police station would actually serve as, like, security. Um, the fire station would probably be the medic stuff. And so it makes sense that he would rent out businesses. It's interesting <clears throat> to think of a time when this was the case, but he didn't have the money to just flat out build the park. So he had to do these things in order to get the money to make the park. Right. Like now it's like, wow. seems strange that Disney would need to borrow money from everybody because they own everything. Right. But like then he really had to, you know, they had some hits. They were, they were going strong, but like he didn't have land development money. <laughs> like <laughs> it's hard to convey how strange a thing this was for someone to do. He's the head of a film studio. Right. He's known for making whimsical cartoons and family entertainment. He's like, I want to buy some land and make like a place that people go to. And, and it seems so ordinary now and such like an obvious branding decision to make. But like he was the first person pretty much, at least in the modern society as we know it now, to do that. Right. It was a crazy thing to do. Because <laughs> like... <laughs> I'm thinking of modern celebrities today, because I think Walt Disney was a celebrity in his time. Mm -hmm. And modern celebrities today, when they're doing one thing and they start to branch into a second thing, and we're like, oh, what a nut. Like, oh, Kanye West thinks he's a fashion designer now? What a nut. That's crazy. But like, Kanye is trying to do a business that currently exists on top of music. You know, right. like it's, there are fashion designers right now. He wants to be another one. Sure. Walt Disney wanted to make up creating your own like entertainment fief in the middle of some land where people will just go and wander around. Right. That's incredible. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be like the, uh, I don't know, that would be like the head of a major studio today. Well, let's say Michael Bay is like, okay, I've done movies. I have my own production studio. Now I want to race kangaroos. <laughs> I want to start a kangaroo racing league. Right. Yeah. He's, he's <laughs> creating an entire industry that does not yet exist. Right. I think some of this also linked to Fantasia, right? 
because the idea is he made Fantasia and when it when he it came with very specific instructions and when it was touring like how to show it in the theaters and he had ideas like during scenes have like potpourri come out and smells really? and sounds yeah he wanted it to be interactive oh so he was like doing the and, the castle pictures of like yeah. The 50s, you know, like House on Haunted Hill. Where they're like, it's in 4D. Like a skeleton will fly through the audience. And like, yeah, oh, the, yeah. yeah, and what I believe happened the is... The nicer version of that idea. Yeah. <laughs> and what I heard happen is that that wasn't enough. That was part of it, too, of like any asshole can like throw potpourri at an audience. Um, he wanted something more <laughs> enveloping, and that's part of where Disney came from. And that leads to the... Thing I was telling you about where on Main Street, if you go to Disney and walk down Main Street, as you're walking, all the businesses are named after people who help make the park. Yeah, and, that was fascinating. Yeah, was yeah. And it said that that's like beginning credits because the last name, when you get to the castle and turn around, look, is Walt Disney's name on a window. So the way a director's name would be last, it's the yeah. last thing. So it's the idea that you're walking into a movie, essentially. You're walking into an imaginary land. Yeah, that's fascinating that it's like an extension of the thing he already knows how to make. And he's right. just doing it with physical buildings on a street in like a town that... Also, that's fascinating that you guys said it's based on the town that he remembers in his youth. Because apparently his youth was like all funnel cake, you know, right. and like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. souvenirs. Entirely like... <laughs> funnel cake. And... Trolleys. And... Yeah. <laughs> Barbershop quartets. Right. <laughs> he, a lot uh, of staff, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, f- what is that called? Fondant? That decorative sugar that you put on top of cakes? Oh, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, like chocolate. Uh... <laughs> yeah. This, I think this is an article coming up, but he had an apartment built for him, for he and his wife, uh, above the fire station, I think, in Disneyland, for him to stay in during when Disneyland was completing construction, so he wouldn't have to keep driving back and forth from Los Angeles and Anaheim. Wow. See, well, he wanted to be there on site to oversee its... It's construction. Right. Well, it's he's the Westworld guy, but, but yeah, he's, he's completely way. Anthony Hopkins in Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. You guys had also picked out some stuff with when he moved on to Disney World in Florida that there was a lot of sort of just subterfuge to set that up because it seems like Disneyland was relatively above board like he just said yeah. here's my studio I'll put a thing next to it that's what we'll do it sounds like Disney World was all uh, like a spy operation or something yeah and I think that's largely because the industry now existed like I think yeah. there were probably other theme parks or similar tourist destination attractions that had been constructed in between Disneyland and Disney World at this time. Yeah, there actually there's one because uh, as we're talking about, like people are just making up what summer is. They came up with uh, the first Six Flags location in the '60s, and that park. If you don't know, there's Six Flags locations everywhere. But yeah. the first one was in Arlington, Texas, and it's called Six Flags because it was basically an attempt to do a museum with like some attractions on top of it and they wanted to talk about the six flags that had flown over texas and how it had been held in history by like spain and france and had been an independent republic and was now the u.s and so it was mostly constructed of like just historical exhibits and then they've since bulldozed all of that to build roller coasters yeah. like they've just got rid of and all now, of those elements and now here's the bad Man, right, right. <laughs> like, um, yeah, because uh, Warner Brothers stepped in at, at some point and bought them. Yeah, yeah, and they also just found that wasn't particularly popular. Right, yeah, and things I mean, like that. nobody gives a shit about that. Yeah. We want to ride uh, fun roller coasters. And once you 
build it outside of Texas, people are like, all right, why do I care? Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> Same yeah. Thing. It's like, oh, come to this berry farm and then ride a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> but I just like jam. And then everybody else is like, I just like coasters. Yeah. And then, then that's the building. I'm done. a coaster man. <laughs> Eating jam on the roller coaster. <laughs> But so other people had built parks, arcs, so then... Yeah, it, and with Disney, he knew that if he was going to go to Florida and buy a bunch of land under the name Disney, they were going to charge him an insane amount of money at that point. Okay. So yeah. the the plan was to create a bunch of shell companies. I have some of the names here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Latin American Development and Management Group, Tomahawk Properties, <laughs> and the good one, because it's Disney... M dot T lot co as an empty lot co. Oh yeah. He also, his, he got real, a little too yeah. cute with that yep. one. <laughs> it gets that's, even, that's, like, that's like a Riddler riddle. Like, yeah. you, you don't, you're, you're giving away too much there. <laughs> he went further than that. Also his, the Disney attorney, um, Bob Foster changed his name when he went there to Bob Price when he was looking for land. Oh, like he was under an alias. Like. Yeah, that's, and he would not fly directly to and from Florida and Los Angeles. Really? He would stop in St. Louis to make it look like the mystery buyer was like there. People <laughs> thought it was like, I guess, McDonald Aircraft, McDonald Aircraft. Oh, okay. Um, was the buyer. Like he would throw people off with his travels. Like they were really, <laughs> they were probably really enjoying themselves doing this. And he did the last name Price on his operation to right. discover prices uh, right. for land. To price the land. Yeah, it's they got they because, got a little too cute. Right. Because as you say, this is the Adam West Batman, but in real life. Yeah. <laughs> where yeah. people are, are, are puzzle villains. <laughs> so he bought a shitload of land in, in Florida. Was he was Disney still himself still alive at this point? When was when was Disney World built? I'm pretty sure he supervised Disney World. Yeah, Disney World was built in nineteen seventy one. It opened in 1971, but I think they were building it throughout the 60s. And if, if I remember right, he in particular was trying to push to build a city of the future in a dome in Disney World in Florida there. But then he died in the mid 60s before they could make it happen. And so then they kind of dropped that part and just built, you know, coasters and And, and Epcot, and I assume. I Ep think yeah, that's what Epcot became. Yeah. And Epcot became that, yeah. Epcot's a lot of fun because it's like going into what the 70s thinks the year 2000 would be. And so yeah. it's all retro and futuristic. it's frozen in time. It's yeah. great. <laughs> um, yeah, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. There it is. All right. That yeah. makes sense. And it's weird because as far as I know, much like Six Flags, it was, or at least early Six Flags, it was mostly educational stuff. And then they were like, oh, right, this is not uh, terribly popular. With body people. Wars. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> stuff was my favorite. There was the the sea, the land, bot yeah, Body Wars. So they had like three buildings devoted to like the ocean, land and like inside of you that was where body wars was which i believe was based off of that 70s what am i thinking it was fantastic voyage fantastic voyage yeah um that i think they just later rebranded as body wars yeah yeah there's also a cracked article called five disney park attractions you won't believe existed and that tells me that apparently when disneyland opened in california they had an attraction called the hollywood maxwell's intimate apparel shop where you could go and pick out like lingerie while you were shopping at Disneyland, which we think of as a pretty like family friendly, literally PG place. And they had an animatronic lady named the Wonderful Wizard of Bras who would show people around the lingerie shop to check out, you know, just like scanty stuff. 
you know? That's one of, the, pun. one of the most 1950s things, like the <laughs> 50s businessman jet-setting right. kind of crowd. <laughs> I, I do believe they still had a lingerie shop later. I, I could have sworn there was a Jessica Rabbit one. If that might have been oh, in downtown Disney it. or something like that. Oh, sure, in downtown Disney, yeah, yeah but like in a park proper yeah. that seems weird, <laughs> like on Main Street. Yeah, and it's that fascinating like proto-summer thing where it's like, oh, if I build a fake Main Street in my park, obviously it has to have pretty much every business a real town has. I don't like sanitize it or or drop the stuff that's not related to entertaining kids. We're going to have it. We're going to have a lingerie shop. We're going to have an adult <laughs> video store. We're going to have like a weird wharf. We're going to we're going to do it all, you know, but like <laughs> It looks like it was at Pleasure Island, the resort from Disney, which is right next to the parks. And it was oh, the okay. Jessica Rabbit shop, which it, it featured some lingerie and also just memorabilia in general. It was like a tiny tucked away place. Yeah, it was at, it was at Walt Disney World, apparently. Yeah, Walt Disney World has the resorts around it and the yeah. water parks. Aside from like the four main parks, there's just a bunch of little resorts and parks and towns. And then Disney World, because it's in Orlando... Right, Orlando was kind of was kind of nothing. It was a nothing place. Like it wasn't a tourist spot or anything before Disney World opened. Then after Disney World opened, now you have Sea World there. There's a uh, Bush Gardens in Tampa, which is near-ish, and Universal. then there's also Universal Studios in the same area. So it created an entire tourism center in yeah. the middle of Florida. Just in this Un- like, no- nothing place in the middle of Florida suddenly becomes this like huge center of just nationwide tourism, even worldwide tourism. People come from around the world to go to Disney. Unfortunately, yeah. it didn't do great things for Orlando. I lived there. <laughs> I lived in Winter Park, which is next door to Orlando. Okay. And there's International Drive or iDrive, and that's where all the, the hotels are. Everybody kind of goes there. That's central to where all the parks are. And that's just like filled with bullshit little tourist attractions like fun little things to do on in your night off from going to disney with the family you go to downtown orlando and it is a ghost town the economy Mm. there is terrible there's nothing to do great punk scene but that's because it's a rundown (laughs) terrible area um a lot of crime like if you go to orlando the the more um industrial areas and stuff like that a lot of crime so like it's really just that one part and all of it is because, like, who would go to Orlando when there's downtown Disney? Like, it's essentially the city itself has life sucked out of it by these tourist right. attractions. It's, 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 it's like a Walmart. It's like dropping a Walmart in the yeah. middle of a community and, like, destroys all the other local businesses. Yeah, there are no local businesses there. Probably gun shops. There's probably some local gun shops. Sure. Yeah. Because the business is Disney. That's yeah. It. yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's the only game in town. Yeah, downtown Disney is literally, like, nightclubs. There's cigar shops. There's... Everything but Disney. And nobody's living there, so it's all tourism. No one needs to really shop anywhere local for anything when they're there. Yeah, because well, I, I, as a kid, we didn't go to Disney parks, and so I would just sort of hear about them. And, and still, I've only actually been to Disneyland once in life. That's it. But then, like, my grandma would come back from, I think it's Epcot. It's wherever they have the International Village thing. That's Epcot, And so yeah. she'd, like, she'd I'd come back, and I'd be like, how was Disney? And she'd be like, I got you an authentic advent calendar from Germany. And I'd be like, but, but you you went to Disney. And she was like, I know. And that was all I knew. That was the whole explanation. <laughs> because yeah. it's like a micro city on top of micro cities on top of micro cities in a way that 
even now is confounding to me, but to people when it was invented, must have been mind blowing. Right. Yeah. And I will say that advent calendar was probably authentic. The way that yeah. works there is they do an exchange program between countries. So the employees at each little pavilion are in fact from that country. That's incredible. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> there, like on a work visa or whatever. Just that's got to be weird for them. That's their like an introduction to America. Right. It's working it's at Disney. At, yeah, <laughs> like, being basically a stereotype of their country. Professionally. In, yeah, in, professionally, a, in a weird in curated community. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's something yeah. I don't know if we want to get into. I know employees of Disney and I know like what happens when you work at Disney, where you live, the communities outside of it. There's the town of Celebration, which is like a dystopian uh, like suburb of oh. Disney that Disney created where it's very, very strict codes and, like, morals, and it's pretty oh. insane. Yeah, and a, a lot of Disney employees live there. It's like a company town? Like, it's it's has rules built by the Disney people? Yeah, I went there once, and it's yeah, it's pretty creepy. Like I believe we... Like Stepford Wives? Yeah. yeah I believe we've written an article about it as well. It, yeah, I think so, too. It'd be yeah. interesting to talk about where the idea of, you know, all these theme parks coming up, you know, with Six Flags, Universal Studios, Bush Gardens. <laughs> There's a King's Dominion. I don't know how w- w- uh, across the nation that is, but it's like very close to Bush Gardens in Virginia. And other sorts of like kind of the, the idea of like roadside attractions, yeah, which came about because of the interstate system, which also came about around the same time when people started to take vacations around the country and were started being able to just drive to different places across the country. So that became a whole industry of let's build up a tourist trap basically is the pejorative word for him, but like along along the freeways, along the interstates, yeah. to get these people as they're doing their family vacations over the summer. Yeah, that is a fascinating, this sort of space we keep talking about where summer is an invented space that needs to be filled also as, like you say, like something like an interstate shows up. Now that's a new element of that space. Like, oh, there's this giant road people are going down. And Tom, you had emailed before about uh, some a particular roadside oh, yeah. attraction <laughs> that that I've gone past too in, in the Carolinas. That's uh, amazing that you that uh, I've encountered somebody else who knows it. Yeah. It's it's this place called South of the Border. It's on the border between North and South Carolina. Right. So um, it is north of the United States Mexico border, I uh, believe. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they heroically adopted the uh, Mexico as its theme, but in the most racist way imaginable. Uh huh. Uh, and so what they do is, I forget the particular stretch of interstate that it that it's along, but there's a particular road that you go along when you're going down the, the East Coast, down South, and they start their billboards like 100 miles out. Right. Like, get ready for South of the Border. But the, And there are these big, bombastic billboards. They're, they're painted with like neon day glow colors. They have huge props on them, like a giant hot dog or like a smashed car, like... A, a rotating wheel of, of sheep that are going above this guy's head as he's asleep. The billboards themselves are such a spectacle that it became a fixture of family trips with my family. We would be driving down from Virginia to, to Georgia to visit my grandparents for the summer. Yeah. And we would just pass these billboards and get so excited. Oh, you know, so they're south of the billboard, <laughs> south of the border billboard. We just get so excited to see them. And we never actually stopped at south of the border. Yeah, us neither. Yeah, yeah. same here. You know it? Oh, yeah, I know it. That in um, <laughs> Waldrug. You guys know Waldrug by any chance? No. In South Dakota, it was the world's Dumbled. largest drugstore. Oh. I've never been to South, South Dakota. Oh, okay. No. Had animatronic T-Rex. It was another one where <laughs> you know you're coming on Waldrug because you see it 
for like hours and hours yeah. billboards telling you that it's going to happen. Yeah. And then you get there and you're like, what the fuck That's is this? 110% what South Border is. Yeah. Like for, I mentioned it's racist. <laughs> it is stunningly racist. It's like yeah. they're, they're all, their mascot is a guy named Pedro and he's just the most racist caricature of a Mexican person. And he talks in too many E's. Yes. <laughs> like, well, also, and we know his level of racism having not actually attended the park, just driven on the road where there's all the advertising for the park. Like, right. it's that powerful. Yeah, it's, that you it's could potent. It it's potent. <laughs> it hangs in the air around the billboards like an aura. No, yeah. we actually did stop there eventually when I was oh, you did? when as a teenager. Yeah. We, oh, we, I see. We've, I finally stopped there when I was uh, more grown up, and it's it's the greasiest spoon you can imagine. It's just like kind of a shitty. It's maybe one mile altogether. Uh, it's just a cluster of terrible drive-in motel a, a long low warehouse full of like really chintzy americana style merchandise a fireworks stand one or two terrible restaurants and a gas station and that's it that's south of the border yeah like, and when there's a i the thing i remember at most other than the billboards about every mile for <laughs> miles and miles and miles is it had like a giant observation tower and the top of the tower was shaped like a sombrero. Like a sombrero, yeah. It was a big sombrero tower. Yep. And I was, even as a child, even in the past, I was like, ah, that's probably not great. That's <laughs> like just as a thing socially. Oh, you were a more progressive child than I was. I was just clapping with delight. I was like, it's south of the border. Yeah. Like I just you... never, <laughs> I think maybe when I was like, when we went down, when I was in like middle school, we were going down there. I, I, I think it finally, click with i was like this is a little racist (laughs) but yeah it's literally just a truck stop it's just a pit stop for people like us families on summer vacation driving along the interstate yeah yeah and it's 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 so funny like the idea of americana is like route 66 that like being on the road for for vacation taking a long family trip and all the sights you see along the highway yeah like that's a big part of like the visual definition of Americana of what it means to be, you know, American is you take a, vac- a family vacation in the car you, and then you you see all these weird sites like the alligator museum along the side of the road or, you know, wh- whatever it might be. Some sort of object, but larger. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. come see the giant <laughs> peach, which yeah. is one in uh, Georgia. There's a big water tower that looks like a big peach. Oh, yeah. I thought <laughs> you were going to say it was one in Rolled Doll. And I was like, yeah, right. oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It flies around. Yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> Funny, I just realized I grew up with one of these, like, oh, really? in my town, and I never thought of it as one, because it's a little more classy. It was Yankee Candle. The original Yankee Candle shop had a small room that had trains in it. Um, and it was oh. just like, oh, this is a cool little train room. That has now grown into a giant Christmas village roadside attraction. Oh, wow. And I wonder if a lot of these do that. With, like, south of the border, they were like, yeah, we have this fun little thing. And then it just kept growing and growing. And got out of control. I think because at one point Yankee Candle was trying to buy the town it was in to start Whoa. a village. A whole it was going to go that off the rails, right? And they didn't because actually the same reason Disney bought Dummy Corporations. The, the businesses asked for way too much money because they knew what it was for. That's almost certainly what happened with South the Border because it was clearly just like a, a nothing pit stop, like a motel and a gas station. And I think it was just one company slowly. Got the motel, got the gas station. Hey, let's put a restaurant and a, let's let's make this a stop. Let's make this a thing. And they decided we're right on the border. Let's do a border theme. And then they just went real racist with it. I'm now imagining like, because how old is it? Like I'm imagining As like, long as I can remember. It's now like the grandkids of the owner like looking at it like, God, this is 
racist. (laughs) (sighs) Like, how do you rebrand south of the border over time? Yeah, I think, right. There's, you can't just like, you either lean into it or you, or yeah. you close up shop. You, you explode it like the Shania Twain Center. Like yeah. you just, right. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting that I feel like a lot of these places are driven by property value. Like whether just the land can, like a large parcel of land can be acquired to do something. There's one in that article of, of theme parks that went belly up weirdly where you, you guys talk about a medieval castle in the middle of the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas which was built by a, a French guy who built one in France and said, I'm going to build one in Arkansas too. It worked out in France for him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he thought Arkansas would also appreciate that. His name is Michel Guyot, and uh, he first built a castle in France where it was a thriving attraction. Apparently 30,000 people came every year. And the idea was you could go to this place in France and use, like, medieval tools to build a medieval castle. Like, you could be a a serf for a day or a peasant for a day. And so then he was like, I will do it in Arkansas, too. And apparently we're not as down with being medieval peasants as the French. I mean, it's not fun for us. We don't like to go on vacation and work. Yeah, that is a consistent theme of this summer we've constructed, is that you don't do backbreaking manual labor necessarily. No, I don't, I don't want to go on vacation and help build a <laughs> castle. That's not what I'm into. I mean, unless I get to live there when it's done. But he was he was also able to get this land, I think, pretty cheaply, because according to the article, he tried to have them start building the castle. And then there's this amazing picture in it where you can see what it is now, which is just the very basic foundation. And I guess nobody's done anything else with it. No, they just got the outline. And then yeah, it's, it's cursed land. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody was like, finally, this land for something else. You know? <laughs> it's uh, going to end up being a tourist attraction like in another generation or two where it's just going to be like, yeah, that's the why they tried to build a castle now. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind of reminding me of um, the Ark Encounter. Have you guys heard of that? Ark Encounter. In no. Kansas, or no, I believe it's Kentucky. They're building a life-size Noah's Ark. And it's going to have a museum and stuff in it. And they've been trying to do it for a very long time. And I think they've completed it. I think it's actually going to be a thing. I have no idea who's going to go to it. (laughs) I mean, I wish them well, but I'm imagining in 15 years, they're just being a giant rotting ark in the middle of Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. And people are going to be like, how how the hell did that get there? I like that they built it as far from the sea as possible. Mm -hmm. It's just going to (laughs) be. Well, I mean, if there's a second flood, they'll be good. Oh, I guess the sea will get to them. Yeah, Yeah. right. Yeah. It's just going to become like, you know, when like a 7-Eleven or like an Arby's or something goes out of business and like another business moves in but doesn't change anything and it's clear it used to be this other thing. That's what this is going to be. Nobody's going to go to the Ark. It's going to go out of business and some like. It's going to be a subway. Yeah. Or it's going to be like the boat hotel. Like it's <laughs> just going just gonna to move right. in and, and not change anything. <laughs> just from then on, any business, it's like, oh, here it is. You're probably going to want to make it boat themed somehow. Um, I mean, you already got the boat. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you how to, is, the how to run your business. You. Yeah. Just work from the boat. Right? <laughs> yeah. There's one really weird example of that in that same article about amusement parks dying off where apparently there was a world of Sid and Marty Croft, uh, the people who made H.R. Puffin stuff, and they built it in downtown Atlanta. Which well, was also, not a good idea. They also did a Land of the Lost, right? I do not. I think so. I think so. I'm going to say yes. Yeah. yeah. The deal was they built it in downtown Atlanta, and Atlanta was going to clean down their downtown. Like, that was the exchanges. We're going to build this family attraction, and you're going to make it 
so that families will want to go there. And Atlanta did not hold their end of the bargain. Yeah. And so it was just a crime-ridden area with a theme park. It was right. the largest indoor theme park, I believe. Yeah, apparently it was a huge indoor theme park. It's also based on the relatively psychedelic work they did with HR Puff and stuff. Right. And then also, according to this article, the location where it used to be is now the location of CNN headquarters. So I'm assuming they either revamped or Shania Twain centered the structure that was there. <laughs> I hope they uh, didn't. <laughs> that's what I call explosions now. Just roll with it. I can see Ted Turner approaching that building and being like, keep everything the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> and just moving CNN inside that right. HR puppet stuff museum. <laughs> right. That Turner classic movie sensibility. Of right. Everything will be preserved. Glorious color. We'll do news in front of the crazy stuffed uh, person thing. <laughs> yeah. We'll do it. <laughs> Speaking of old movies, have you guys ever heard of, uh, there was a Wizard of Oz themed theme park in Beach Mountain, North Carolina? I have, no. I have heard of it. They took a mountain and they put up like this giant Wizard of Oz themed theme park. So they just like constructed a yellow brick road and constructed a version of the Emerald City. But then a lot of it burned down and now... <laughs> <laughs> it's the appropriate reaction. <laughs> Smoothly moving through that part of it. Uh, a lot of it burned down, and like now that space opens once in a while to be like a theme park for seeing an abandoned theme park. Like people go to be in a former theme park, and like that's the theme park now. The reason I know this is because I have a very vivid memory of a picture I've seen online of an abandoned yellow brick road. Yeah. Yeah. It's like overgrown and, and there's a, dystopian. Um... Yeah. There's a Disney theme park that's like that, right? It's like a water park. A water park, like yeah. Like the, the Swiss Family Robinson water park or something goofy like something that. Something like that, which is weird for Disney. You'd think they would at least build over it. They have plenty of things that they could replace it. It's with. apparently still there. You can jump the fence and yeah. have all sorts of fun. Yeah, there's in one. this dangerous water park. <laughs> abandoned amusement parks are the best. There's one by where, uh, Massachusetts where I live in um, Mount Tom. It had an amusement park. And you can just sort of go there. I mean, you're not supposed to, but, you know. Who cares? Of, yeah, there's a lot of super fun things. If you're <laughs> an it, amateur photographer and you want to do something spooky, there you go. It's right there. The abandoned porn tag on Tumblr where yeah. the amazing abandoned structures are. No porn. Also, it was called Mount Tom? Yeah, it's called it's Mount Tom. I live near Mount Tom. I've climbed Mount Tom. It just makes me imagine. Solid. It yeah. makes me imagine a park just around. It's like one guy, like just like trying to keep it all going. Yeah. Like, right. Oh, hey, welcome! Like trying to do admissions <laughs> and running the rides and. This <laughs> <laughs> is Cartman Land. Just open it for himself. <laughs> People want to come here. Yeah. <laughs> Can't they read the sign? It's Mount Tom. <laughs> I mean, technically, I think Mount Tom was there before the park, but no. I like your narrative. Of Not the in better. my mind. Yeah. Listen, they were erected at the same time. Yeah. There's something Dave, you pointed out, because as we're talking about how theme parks keep evolving and evolving and evolving, people are sort of hacking Disney by creating gangs at the parks. Yeah, it's becoming its own culture now. Like, it's gone from a tourist attraction to, like, people who devote a large chunk of their time to just loving these parks. Yeah. Which kind of makes sense, because that was always Walt Disney's vision was not... He wanted to create, like, a living space that was his imagination come to life. So, in a way, he'd yeah. probably be super stoked. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he'd be stoked at, yeah, the Disney gangs, which are, if you look them up, they're literally people who look like bikers but with like Disney themed leather jackets names like the Disney villains, main street elite, uh, Mickey's <laughs> pink ladies. There's some reference. There's 
Turbo Yugen Disneyland, which Turbo Yugen is a whole other thing that people can go ahead and look up. It's related to a band and they have various like people around cities and stuff who create essentially little clubs for the band. Um, and this is the Disneyland uh, <laughs> chapter of it. So, yeah, there's been rumors of gang fights, but I for the I think for the most part, they're they're harmless. Um, they're just That's... people having fun. When we were emailing about this, you said that people will attempt to kind of cosplay at the parks because there are park rules against wearing costumes, but they'll do a kind of that. Mm -hmm. But then yeah. also apparently these gangs aren't limited by that. They can wear whatever biker stuff they want. Right. The reason is is they don't Disney doesn't want other guests to become confused and approach yeah. like a, a guest who's in like a full Aladdin costume thinking it's one of their employees. Oh yeah. Because yeah. uh, they can't obviously govern how that person behaves and they don't want them to be representing Disney. So you can't like wear like full on costumes, but you can wear a biker jacket with Mickey Mouse's face on it. Right. Shit. But you can also <laughs> do, you can also do, it's called Disney bounding. And if you, you go online and look it up, you can find guides to it because people have realized you can't dress like Aladdin, but you can wear a red cap and like a certain color shirt and like accessories. You can do the color scheme of Aladdin or subtly be Aladdin, wear like a vest and wow. have like little pin with a lamp on it. So people will now go to Disney dressed in full cosplay, but it's all subtle. It's all civilian clothes that have been turned into that, that character, essentially. <laughs> so they get around the rules that way, which is pretty neat. I don't know why anybody would do it, but like that's just, that's not my thing, I guess. <laughs> I like the idea that other guests are start vaguely seeing the other characters and the other guests. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that might be even more unsettling. Start than thinking you're going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the characters do know about this, I think, because people will pose with them and stuff like that. Okay, I think the more yeah. popular is like Alice in Wonderland stuff, like anything where it's a suit because it's – you like you can dress oh. more or less like the Mad Hatter and you can just think someone will just be like, oh, that's a very dapper man going on Splash Mountain. Sure. Um, but <laughs> – it's a subtle Mad Hatter. No, they can't keep you from wearing a suit at Disney. Right, right. Yeah. Anyone can be a steamboat employee. Yeah. Can't stop it. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the improv everywhere where they uh, went to a Best Buy in tan yeah. pants and a blue <laughs> shirt. And they're like, don't say you're from, you work there. But if someone asks you a question, you're welcome to be very helpful if you want to be. <laughs> There's yeah. no rule against helping someone in a Best Buy. Yeah, I don't know if everybody's here, but they flood a Best Buy with people in blue polos and tan khakis, which looks like the employees, but is not. It's the best. Yeah. It's just the best hacking of a Best Buy. <laughs> it sounds really frustrating, honestly. <laughs> like, if I was going to Best Buy to do some shopping, and it's this fucking... We're doing improv. I'm like, no, I want to buy some headphones. The like, <laughs> the employees didn't appreciate it either. Uh, it's like, don't, don't do that. Because yeah. <laughs> like, I want to buy some shit and leave. Like, yeah. don't, don't. But Tom, yes, and <laughs> it's me at the effort. I love that theme parks are such an incredible, like, as just a development in civilization. How quickly they've moved. Like, we went from Disneyland in the 1950s to now we have theme parks that are an attraction because they're abandoned theme park. Like it's evolved yeah. so fast in a few <laughs> decades. And it's also grown to be a worldwide thing. There are a few like, you know, there's that uh, Shania Twain Center, as you mentioned also that article about dead theme parks talked about a North Korean fun fair. And that's not like a, a gag I'm trying to do. There was a fun fair that they built in North Korea. 
and apparently it never really got operational. Partly, uh, I wonder why. It's, it's like just... <laughs> technically operational, right? It's a, yeah. the article says that soldiers still go there. It looks like the damn amusement park in Chernobyl. Like it looks like yes, it couldn't be farther than operational. And apparently, people you can technically go on these rides. Well, because you, uh, you guys, uh, especially you, Dave, with the tracking of BS news that we've done on the site a lot, I, I feel like we've found that it's kind of hard to get accurate reporting out of North Korea. Mm-hmm. It's just a little bit difficult to know exactly what's going on. But apparently with this fun fair, they'll like occasionally try to turn it on to convince people from outside the country that they have a running theme park and it's going well. Right. And the BS News version of that is maybe it's like this Wizard of Oz place. Yeah, like maybe yeah. they're like, look how fucked up this park is. They're completely <laughs> in on the joke. They're they're enjoying it for that, and we're just reporting it wrong. <laughs> and they, yeah. turn, they, they fire up the bumper cars once every three months. Like, yeah. look at it. Can I ride on? Oh God, no! <laughs> <laughs> like, right. In in my head, it's like when you said fire up. I imagine they just like press a button and it bursts into flames immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a lot of grinding, uh, metallic <laughs> grinding, and sparks. Yeah, yeah. Because the pictures in the article, like, it's mostly empty rides. And when there are living beings around, it's like wild dogs. There's right. just, like, loose packs of dogs running around the place. <laughs> it's a theme park for dogs. Yeah. Like, they're having yeah, a blast. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because every country, even North Korea, is like, oh, Walt Disney's idea from, like, 70 years ago. We're doing it. Yeah. That's that's just, there's summer. We, we got to Yeah, it. we got to have one of those. Yeah. I mean, on this list, it was the number one <laughs> that I found the most interesting is the Hard Rock Park. Only because it was apparently great. Like, it was a really fun park. It's a good idea for a park. Like, they did the Hard Rock. No, it was called the Rock and Roller Coaster at MGM Studios. Okay. So, like, rock-themed amusement park. Why not? That's generic enough of a theme. Like, that works really well. Everybody loves it. It was a great park, good location. Apparently, they were so confident in it, they didn't really advertise it. (laughs) <laughs> and that's sort of a problem. You're, yeah, you're I had no to, idea it ever existed. Yeah, and it went out yeah. after how long? It was something like six months. Like, it barely lasts. Jeez. That's fascinating because it's in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And my main memory of getting to and from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina is south of the border advertising. You would think they could buy up a couple of those yeah, billboards. I will <laughs> never forget south of the border. <laughs> and it's just a piece, biggest piece of shit attraction right. you can imagine and then this like hard rock cafe amusement park couldn't get any of that real estate and <laughs> <know> that <laughs> they couldn't get a couple of billboards away from south of the border right like how much money is that place bringing in <laughs> they're like we don't want to butt in they're doing their thing and they can have all the advertising <laughs> like in the article one of my it has one of my favorite pictures in the world because it's this like brick archway at the park and they have very nice, like, chiseled letters on it, quoting, here we are now, entertain us, period, like, attributed to Nirvana, which feels very, like, dry and dour and ironic in this context. It's the best. <laughs> they put a period at the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> they didn't even treat it like a song lyric. They treated it like Abe Lincoln said it with gravity on a battlefield. Or right. Something. Yeah. And it was just like a, a statement. Like it wasn't, there's no excitement in it. There's no expectation. It's just like, here we are. Also, just a correction. It lasted five months, not six. It didn't even Damn. get to half a year. Man. They did one tenth of their business that was anticipated. When was it open? What year? It opened in 2008. It was April of 2008. So it was, wow. Yeah. 
So it was so it's it, pretty modern. Right. It was open the summer that The Dark Knight was in the theater. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's not that long ago. <laughs> well, it's also like, because with all these parks, I think part of their magic and beauty of, of the way they can come apart is that, like, like we've said, there's no real rules in terms of what's a successful park. It's like, just will people show up? But... By 2008, I think we'd pretty much figured out the blueprint for launching one of these, you know? Right. And they did not use it. They were like, no advertising, and we're going to just see what happens. <laughs> they did hire the Eagles and the Moody Blues to play on opening day, so that should have gotten all the kids there. Yeah, yeah. particularly the Moody Blues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as history progressed, and we had summer, and we said, hey, how do we fill it? It seems like there were a lot of different approaches beyond theme parks and in a lot of other ways. Dave, you did an article about how the 4th of July, but also a lot of summer in general, had some truly bizarre attractions back in the day. We used to be way better at celebrating the 4th of July. Yeah. And by better, I mean, like, we used to murder each other, basically, (laughs) with explosions and animals, animal abuse. Okay. If that's something you're into, I guess. Is it specifically, uh, I think your article touches on horse diving. Yes, horse diving, which it sounds like something that would be like in the 30s. This lasts until like the 70s, and it's <laughs> literally what it sounds like. They made a movie about it called Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken. They did, which is based on a true story about... Uh, she was a horse diver that went blind diving a horse. Yeah, Sonora Carver, I believe her name was. She went blind after a botched horse landing, um, which apparently happens a lot. They teach you don't land on your face. When you're horse diving, don't (laughs) land on the face. The thing is, that sounds like something you could avoid, but you're diving while riding a horse. So the first thing that you're going to land on is your face. Yeah. So these are people on horseback, basically just taking a horse off of a diving board yeah, into we should a body pro- of water? I guess we should probably explain what horse diving is, but that is exactly what it is. When you said it's what it sounds like, that's true. But like, I, I feel like just the truth of that let's is really, very meaty. Let's really make let's, sure that yeah. you're, you're meeting us. It was popular, very popular in Atlantic City. Um, it was invented right. by William Carver, who got the idea of horse diving by watching a bunch of horses fall off a bridge. In 1881. And it was that like, should you know, be a spark. Yeah, people could pay money for People this. would pay money to watch these horses fall yeah. in the water. Yeah. That and, tremendous uh, mistake should be a business. <laughs> so, and, and here's the thing. Not many surprisingly little reports of death. Even from the horses. There was one drowned horse. A lot of horse panic attacks. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine the horses liked it in general. There's video of it. Go on YouTube. Uh, search horse diving and have a night of it. <laughs> and yeah, they they go up about 40 to 60 feet and they dive into a pool of water on this horse. Not all professionals. There was amateur horse diving. There was one uh, 4th of July celebration where a woman, you can find a photograph of it, attempted a 40-foot jump for $100. She was offered feet. for it. Yeah, and she did it and she actually had to sue to get the money for the hundred dollars that she earned for doing the horse diving. Yeah. But yeah, the most famous one, the one whose wild hearts can't be broken is based off of, not only did she blind herself Uh. doing this, but then continued to horse dive after she was blind. So it didn't get her down. This was her, this was her passion. Wild hearts can't be broken. Nope. They can be blinded. They can be blinded. Yeah. (laughs) Do you guys um, think it would be harder or easier to attempt a horse dive with vision? 
There's one way to find I out. Think, I think I don't know if it would necessarily be harder. It might be easier. Well, I think that's part of. I think they must have to blindfold the horse at least. <laughs> so the horse doesn't know what's up. God, right, right. Horses must think we're so weird. Like all the things we do with horses, like they must have no idea what's going on. And they seem to go along with it way too much. Yeah. If there's one animal that's going to Planet of the Apes on us, it feels like it would be horses at this point. You'd think. Yeah. Because it seems like they trust us implicitly and they shouldn't. Yeah. Like Like if a horse could talk, the first thing he would say is just like, what the hell are you guys doing? (laughs) Yeah, because we could just walk ourselves places. We must all seem like some kind of fetishists mm-hmm. where we need to be carried by the back of a horse. <laughs> Dude, it's fur. I want to be carried. Just carry me. I like that Droopy is your go-to fetishist. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't want to go. I don't like walking. I was like, all right. <laughs> Weirdo. I want to bring it back to uh, uh, Dave, your your home state, the Bay State, Massachusetts. Yeah, because uh, you pointed out that apparently your state has a tremendous history of not just the standard, you know, firework kind of explosions we do to celebrate America, but like massive towering infernos. Yes, we would light shit on fire, and we really enjoyed it. The most notable area was uh, Gallows Hill in Salem, where they. As you can probably guess. That was the picnic area in the past. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a very pleasant picnic area. <laughs> so there was the the November Pope Night celebrations, which I'm not sure what the hell that is. I like to think that it was a night that we celebrated the Pope, but I have no idea. <laughs> These were repurposed in the Pope early 90s. 19- very big in Massachusetts. Yeah. And briefly looking at this link about it, I believe it was a holiday where they uh, paraded effigies of the devil current political scapegoats, and the Pope. Yeah, so, so I, was, so I, I believe they were all right. lumped into the same group. Yeah. And, oh, that makes sense, because in the 1900s, they basically replaced the effigies with a shitload of barrels. They had a lot of barrels. It was that kind of time where you have barrels, and right. you're not sure what to do with it's it. It's the great barrel rush. Yeah, so they... <laughs> Of Ot 3. Well, it's funny because they stacked these barrels about 30 or 40 high, and they would just lit them the fuck on fire in these big bonfires. And the other places around Massachusetts would do it. They'd have competing bonfires on the 4th of July. The flames would reach, like uh, they said, up to like 130 feet. Wow. Um, You could see them from a lot of places. And this went into the 60s, the 1960s. (laughs) So that's fun. And then it sort of went away, and one of the major reasons was because we were running out of barrels. Because who ships things in barrels anymore? You burned them all. Yeah, we burned them all. And then, like, we didn't need barrels. There's been talk of maybe maybe it'll come back, (laughs) like, because of breweries and stuff like that. And oh. like like wood casks and stuff like that. Like maybe maybe we oh. could do this again. Don't know why we would do it again, but yeah, it was uh, it's good time, <laughs> good time in Massachusetts. I know that celebrate the fourth. I know the major reason it went away is like a barrels, but I hope the other reason was like horse diving was too popular. Yeah, you know, like it was just competing <laughs> with like <laughs> we, can't, we can't keep up with these horse diving. Other arcane crazy. We should, <laughs> we should set stacks of horses on fire. Right. <laughs> But there yeah. was, this is another entry on that. I like how much on the 4th of July we would create just giant balls of flame. Because there yeah, was the yeah. Pikes Peak Beacon where they lit gunpowder in Colorado on the 14,000 foot summit of Pikes Peak. What? Yeah, in the year 1901, they built a special track 
for the purpose of delivering the barrels of gasoline into the embers of a bonfire on the top. On the top of the mountain. On the top of the mountain. And just made a big old explosion to celebrate the fourth. It was, let's see. <laughs> lumber was brought up there, dumped into a, a 500 foot long pile covered in kerosene. What? It was burned into embers. And then the barrels of gasoline were rolled onto it. And they described it as a 500-foot wall of fire, already 14,000 feet above sea level, creating <laughs> creating a site that they said could be seen 200 miles away in places like uh, New Mexico and Cheyenne. So basically, instead of fireworks, we just tried to create the biggest explosion possible. It blew up a mountain. Yeah, we blew up a mountain. Right. And we were damn proud to do it. We were, Yeah. Dynamite was a big part of the West for the 4th of July. I mentioned in this article that when denied their fireworks, one town blew up the post office in protest, which I believe is terrorism. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's that's a federal building. So the lesson was, I guess, give them their dynamite. Um, I, want, I want a clip of I want it. a clip of George Bluth for us development being like light terrorism, like just like, <laughs> like may have committed. I believe it qualifies some light yeah. terrorism. <laughs> there was nobody in the building. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it seems like we celebrated the Fourth of July by just recreating the danger of war in various ways. <laughs> yeah, falling off a bridge or surviving explosions. We got soft. <laughs> assaulting the government mm-hmm. assaulting the government yeah that's yep. what it's all about yeah <laughs> one of my other favorite cracked articles is an article it's called six insane summer camps that will make you wish you were a kid and this is another this is another extension of oh what do we do with the youth during the summer and theoretically anything if they'll pay the fee to come to the camp right anything at all <laughs> and one of them is in israel if you get yourself to the outskirts of one of their military bases where they do this you can go to israeli special forces camp where you will just do the things that they do in, I believe, one of the most uh, skilled and well-trained and terrifying special forces units in the world. Yeah. And uh, apparently all climax is in what's called War Night, where there's a giant war game between all the campers on the edge of this uh, military base in the Middle East. I mean, that sounds awesome. Yeah, 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 that sounds dope. Yeah, we're really going to go there. Yeah. We should do a team building, crack team building, have a war night. Yeah. I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> we, can yeah. Tell, we can tell spooky stories. And, we could uh, create spooky stories. We, we can. Yeah. We would create them on our own. Yeah. We'll be the spooky story we want to see in the world. Exactly. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to David Christopher Bell and to Tom Ryman. If nothing else, I'm really glad to know that we all had the same weird highway experiences in the Carolinas. But beyond all those things, I'm just really happy we put that together. And let's go straight on to footnotes. There are a ton of great ones in this one. First one is that cracked article that sparked all of this. Eight amusement parks that died surreal and bizarre deaths. Then we've got Slate and PBS NewsHour about the invention of summers off from school. Smithsonian about William H.H. H. Murray and the Adirondacks and inventing uh, going into the woods for vacation. And then lots more articles from Cracked and elsewhere about Disney, south of the border, horse diving, and all the other summer insanity we talked about. 
One artifact I want to call out in particular is a photo of a map of the first Six Flags theme park. It's the original one. And in this episode, I think I sort of skated through the concept that Texas had Six Flags over it. But that concept is based on how often Texas changed hands in history. It was a Spanish colony, that's one, then a French colony, Mexican territory, independent Republic of Texas, part of the U.S., and briefly, Confederate. So that's six different flags. It also is a pretty literal version of that Eddie Izzard joke, the comedian Eddie Izzard, about how uh, Britain was able to build the British Empire because the places they colonized didn't have flags yet. I feel that the Six Flags concept leaves out, I don't know, all Native Americans ever. But anyway, it's a pretty fascinating park to see the map of because among those other things, there is the Confederacy as one of the flags, and you might think, oh, did they soft-pedal that at all? No, the park has a different area for each of the flags that it talks about, so a whole chunk of the original Six Flags had a Confederate section. Also, kudos to Six Flags for using the historically accurate Confederate stars and bars and not the X-shaped battle flag you see in certain American gift shops. But anyway, check that out. That's a neat piece of history. Also, there's one extra footnote we did, which is just Shania Twain's Wikipedia article. I goofed off and read that for a while, and it turns out it's way more interesting than I expected. I did not know that Shania Twain, in her life, her first husband allegedly cheated on her with her best friend, and then less than two years later, Shania is getting married to her ex-best friend's ex-husband, right? They switched. If that's not a potential Hollywood romantic comedy, I don't know what is. Also, she has a new album coming out in September, which is her first new one in 15 years. Good job, Shania. And if you're saying, hey, Alex, are you plugging the new Shania Twain album? Well, gosh darn it, I think I am. What else am I plugging? We have t-shirts for this show at podswag.com. There's one for the footnotes, which you're listening to now. There's also one for Schmitty the Clam. You can get them at podswag.com, along with shirts and other gear for all your favorite Earwolf shows. We're also doing another live episode of this podcast. It's happening July 8th at 7 p.m. at UCB Sunset in Los Angeles, and we have a stacked lineup. We've got Cracked's Daniel O'Brien, Cracked's Katie Golden, and three of our favorite comedians, Caitlin Gill, Joey Clift, and Matt Kirshen. Our topic will be animals that could conquer Earth, Planet of the Apes style, if they wanted to. As a former zoo tour guide, I could not be more excited. We're going to have a link to that show in the description, or you can just go to sunset.ucbtheater.com for more. Remember, that's theater with an R-E on the end. So think of it as sunset.ucbtheater, and you'll probably remember. But either way, it's linked in the description. Those live podcasts sell out fast, and they're also only 7 bucks a ticket. So I would highly recommend getting as many tickets as you can very quickly. Also, if you're not adjacent to California, that's okay. Maybe you're adjacent to New York City. We're doing a live episode at the Now Hear This Festival in New York in September. It's a Coachella type of thing, but for podcasts. Uh, so one pass lets you hear How Did This Get Made, Comedy Bang Bang, Love It or Leave It, Star Talk Live, and a couple dozen more amazing podcasts. You can score your pass today at nowhearthisfest.com. And if you love this episode, hey, great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media, the official system for sending a push notification to my phone telling me I stink. 
Find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And our super engineer, Brett Rader, is at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter. Also, I think not enough people appreciate the Crack.com social media accounts. There's original jokes, there's original art, there's cartooning, and it's stuff that you won't find on the website. It's just on social media, especially on Twitter and Instagram. Those accounts are run by our Webby Award-winning social media team, and you can find them as at Cracked on everything and Facebook.com slash Cracked. Check those out. They're a good time. Anyway, thank you for listening. May your summer be full of functioning, non-abandoned theme parks. And we'll be back next week with more podcast. How about that? Talk to you then. Question for you. Are you worried about the safety of your home? If you are, you might be sleeping with one eye open. Well, get some sleep knowing that your home and family are protected with Simply Safe. Their home security system comes with powerful entry and motion sensors, a blaring siren that alerts you of trouble, and no long term contracts. 24 7 professional monitoring is just 15 bucks a month. Get Simply Safe and get some rest. Go today to simplysafe.com/listen and get a special 10% discount. That's 10% off at s i m p l i s a f e.com/listen. Hey, we love having advertisers support our show, you know, because we're advertiser-supported. That system depends on them having some information about our audience, and we could use your help if you have a couple minutes to do us a favor. Go to podcastlistener.com slash cracked to answer a few short questions. I have it open in front of me. It's very short and very easy. And it'd be really helpful to us if you'd say a few things about yourself so they know uh, what to sell you in these ad reads. Again, that's podcastlistener.com slash cracked. It'd really help us out. And Smitty the Clam would appreciate it. Hello, people of Earwolf. It is Paul Shear. I host a show on Earwolf called How Did This Get Made with Jason Manzukis and June Diane Raphael, where we watch movies that are so bad, they're actually pretty damn great. I'm talking about Mannequin 2 on the move. 2.5 billion women in the world, and I'm trying to score with a statue. I'm talking about Rowdy Roddy Piper and Hell Comes to Frogtown. Shuts your heart! And of course, I'm talking about Ninja Terminator. You've got three days in which to return the golden ninja warrior, or else you die. The ninja empire is evil. We sat down this week with Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson from Broad City to talk about Ninja Terminator live at Clusterfest. Take a listen to How Did This Get Made this week. Ninja Terminator. Don't miss it. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.